is Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Mike Stroh, one of the pastors here. Let me add my word of welcome to everyone, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. It's been a joy so far to gather and worship. We trust we'll be encouraged as we turn to God's word. Thank you, Carrie Jane, for reading our passage. As the kids are dismissed, if you have a Bible in front of you or uh, on your smartphone, and our scripture text is also on our website, on our bulletin page as well. You know the most common lie we tell in our modern world? I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions. <laughs> Chances are some of us were guilty of that even this week. I mean, whenever you sign up for anything, it could be Netflix or Facebook or a workout program, you have to affirm that you have, in fact, read and agree to the terms and conditions. Would it be fair to say that some of us might not actually do that. I'm just going to go out on a limb. Any PayPal users, for example, I, then you must have read all 36,275 words of their user agreement, right? For context, Shakespeare's Hamlet is 6,000 words shorter. I don't bring this up to guilt trip us. Hey, we're all busy, okay? I get it. It's just to say, we don't always know what we're getting ourselves into when we check that little box, when we sign up for something. Like Facebook, for example, they have the right to use all your photos, all your posts and information any way they see fit. Did you know that? You agreed to it. Those print ads you get in the mail that, you know, promise big things in bold, colorful print, and then if you read the fine print below, it basically says, everything we set up here, we lied. Because companies want your business, and they know 
they're more likely to get it if they bury all those unpleasant details in some fine print or in a user agreement that's as long as a short novel. But we've been seeing in our series in Matthew that we've been seeing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What's amazing all along in Jesus' teaching, he's not given us any fine print. Unless you have a tiny print Bible, but that's, that's on you. Jesus just lays it all out there, both the blessings of following him and also the high cost. And unlike all these companies that we deal with today, Jesus actually wants us to know the terms and conditions up front. Remember, he told us to count the cost. Following Jesus is stepping into a new way of life in his kingdom. And so he wants us to do that with the right expectations. We'll see in our text this morning, Jesus tells us exactly what we're getting ourselves into by following him. And that comes with a high cost, but also even greater blessing. But let's pray as we turn uh, to scripture together. Our Father, in the words that we just sang together, we acknowledge you, we worship you as our savior, as our healer, as our deliverer. And we ask in these moments that we have together before your word that you would quiet our hearts, that you would deliver us from distraction, from those things in our hearts that would pull us away from this truth that we unite around every Sunday of who you are. And so we come, as always, in total dependence and ask your spirit to move in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, if you were with us, our guest speaker, Dr. Armitage, guided us through the first half of this chapter, and we saw Jesus give his 12 disciples uh, specific instructions uh, for a mission he was sending them out on. And this morning, we see the rest of his instructions to the 12. Remember, as we heard last week, this was a very specific mission for those 12 for that assignment. That's what this text is. But as we saw last week, there are several principles of discipleship Uh, from this passage, some terms and conditions, if you will, as we see laid out, uh, starting in verse 24. So look there. Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, the first of Jesus' terms and conditions in this passage is don't expect different treatment. Don't expect different treatment. If they mistreat the master, they'll mistreat the disciples. Simple enough, right? Jesus has just told them in the previous passage to expect persecution. And in verse 25, he says, it is enough. That means we should be content with being like Jesus and all that that brings. That extends to how the world treats us. Beelzebul was a name used by Jews to describe a high-ranking demon, maybe a synonym for Satan himself. In chapter 9, we saw the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting out demons by who? The prince of demons. It seems Jesus has that accusation in mind, and they'll say the same thing again in chapter 12. So we heard about persecution last week, so we don't need to go through all of that. But the point Jesus adds here is that it's not only expected, but it's totally appropriate. See, if we're in Jesus' camp, why would we expect any different? 
And now keep in mind, we have more context than these disciples had here, don't we? At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had been maligned, Jesus had been opposed, Jesus had been misunderstood, but we know on this side of the story just how the master was ultimately treated, don't we? So for us, reading these words together, these words are even more sobering. The cost seems that much higher. Most of us in this country have never experienced serious persecution. We have some in our body who have. Throughout history, those who have given their lives for Christ have done so with contentment, knowing that it is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. Now, if Jesus were a modern-day salesman, you'd expect some of these words to be buried in fine print. But Jesus puts them up front because, again, he wants the would-be disciple, whether you're considering following Christ or the disciple who's been following him for years, Again, to count the cost, to see what you're getting yourself into. But look at verse 26. There is also great privileges that come with being a disciple. Verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. So right after telling them to expect persecution and mistreatment of a very real reason to be afraid, Jesus says, don't be afraid. So a privilege of being a disciple that we've already heard in Matthew is that we have no reason to fear. And we say, wait just a minute. You just told us we'll be persecuted. And in verse 28, Jesus effectively says, don't fear because, hey, the worst they can do is kill you. That's not helping your cause, Jesus. That's not helping the don't fear concept, at least in my mind. But remember, Jesus is inviting us into a whole new way of life, a whole new way to see the world, a whole new set of priorities, a whole new set of values. Instead of only selfish desire and self-preservation, the disciple thinks of God's glory. The disciple thinks of the advance of Christ's kingdom. The disciple thinks of the good of others. So instead of focusing only on these fleeting few years that we have on this earth, the disciple thinks of eternity. Look back at verse 27. Don't fear, Jesus says. Why? Because nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, whatever lies they say about you disciples, don't worry. That will be exposed. The truth will come out. Your faithfulness will be exposed too. And here's the thing. Don't miss this. That may not happen in this life. That may not happen in this life. What Jesus is promising here happens ultimately at his return when every wrong is righted. So what Jesus is promising here is not vindication on our timetable. 
He's promising that truth and justice will ultimately prevail in eternity. That means we need to adjust as disciples. We need to adjust our timetable to match his timetable, which is eternity. We need to adjust our expectations that everything is going to just work out great in the near future for us. See, God's working on a different timetable, and we will never know contentment. We will never know freedom from fear if we're stuck in the world's timetable. Come on, God, I'm following you. I'm faithful to you. Where's my blessings? Now, we need to shift to an eternal perspective so we can see this promise for the good news that it is. And verse 28, even if they kill you, they can't kill you, is basically what Jesus is saying. Instead, we should fear God, a holy and right reverential awe of the one who can destroy, the one who creates and destroys. Those are scary words until you realize who Jesus is talking about. This all-powerful God is not out to get us. It is He is Father to all who know Christ, as we see in the next verse. So don't fear, Jesus says, because your heavenly Father is watching over you. Even a sparrow, the cheapest of birds sold for food in the ancient world, has value to God. And our value, Jesus said, is so much greater. Even the hairs of our head are numbered. But remember the context, sparrows die. Disciples die and suffer. But what he's promising here is that nothing we experience is outside of God's watchful care. And the last reason he tells us not to fear is that his followers, the ones who acknowledge him before others, he will acknowledge before the Father. See, those who deny Christ have put themselves outside the privileges of this relationship. But the believer is secure in knowing that when we stand before God someday, what will matter is our relationship with Jesus. Do you see what an incredible statement of authority Jesus is making here? He's putting himself as the sole determiner of your eternal destiny. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I urge you to wrestle with this claim that he is the way to the Father, to consider what the eternal perspective would look like for you to put your trust in him. And as believers, this assurance that we have, what greater reason do we have not to fear? That no matter what happens to us in this life, we are eternally secure in our relationship with Christ. And so despite the temporary costs for following Jesus in this life, the blessings laid out here are eternal. But he's not done spelling out the cost. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I I thought bringing peace was part of Messiah's mission that was prophesied by so many prophets, right? Didn't the angels proclaim peace on earth at Jesus' birth? Well, yes, of course. All of that is right. So we face a text like this. Is this a contradiction? What is Jesus saying? Well, everything in its right context. We have to remember, what is the peace that Jesus came to bring? Is it just an absence of war and conflict like we often think of peace? Or in our relationships, as we often prefer, is is this peace that Jesus brings just kind of smoothing things over, not addressing hard stuff? No. Peace in the Bible is shalom, fullness of life, fullness of blessing. It's so much more than an absence of conflict. Jesus came to reconcile people to God, to bring peace between God and man, to bring peace with between one, with one another. But the paradox here is that this peace Jesus brings inevitably, inevitably stirs up conflict. Some people resist this mission of peace. Remember, he's already talked about persecution. That's conflict. And here he says, even those in your own family may turn against you for following me. This is a harsh reality for many believers around the world. But even if we have been blessed not to be disowned or persecuted by members of our own family, Jesus again here brings us back to discipleship as a matter of priority. Jesus says we must love him above all. We have to keep reminding ourselves, Jesus is not condoning an unloving attitude, only that when there is a conflict of loyalty, Jesus comes first, all the time. The Greek word for love here is phileo. It's a brotherly or family affection, not agape, the sacrificial love, which is always our calling. Even the ancient rabbis, they took precedence. They demanded priority over even family issues of their disciples. So how much more should Jesus be first in our lives? And Jesus frames this matter of priority in extreme language, doesn't he? We need to take up our cross and follow him. And we need to really take ourselves back here as the disciples would have heard this word. For us today, the cross has become, even for non-Christians, the cross has become a symbol of faith and hope, not so in this day. Crucifixion was a horrific way to die. It carried shame and public disgrace. See, when the disciples saw someone carrying a cross, followed by a group of Roman soldiers, they knew that person was on a one-way trip. And Jesus will repeat the same command in chapter 16 in a positive way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, discipleship is a one-way journey. Following Jesus isn't something we dabble in for a while, maybe try to see how it fits with, no. It's a commitment. It's a journey of lifelong self-denial that often includes persecution, that includes conflict, that includes suffering. So who's in? We excited, pumped about following Jesus, but see, he's so honest with us. This is no sales pitch. This isn't a bait and switch. There's no fine print here. Jesus lays it all out for us. 
Following him might just cost us everything. Everything. But then this incredible paradox in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember that eternal perspective? See, when we focus only on self-preservation, on accumulating everything we can get in this life, we, of course, end up losing it all. So what a tragedy to spend your life seeking only temporary things and stand before God someday with nothing. But the reverse, Jesus is saying, the reverse is also true. When we lose our lives for Jesus, that's when we find life. When we follow him on the road to the cross, we keep on following him to the empty tomb. You do remember Easter, right? It's been a couple of weeks. Our memories get a little fuzzy. The cry of Paul's heart in Philippians 3 is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. We like to leave that part off, but that's part of the equation. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And as we said on Easter morning, this resurrection life will be true of us ultimately when Christ returns, but it's also ours now. His life in us. And so after the strongest statement of cost involved in following him, Jesus concludes with another privilege. Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So while the disciples could expect some to oppose them, remember, like master, like servant, right? Jesus says there will also be others who receive you. Because you're a disciple. This means receive into their homes and hospitality, but also receiving their teaching. Like master, like servant. Right? That's a negative expectation, but it's also a very positive one. As people receive us in Jesus' name, Jesus says they're also receiving him. Jesus is so aligned with his people that he is with us as we go in his name. Paul will say so much about what it means to be in Christ. So he will teach us over and over throughout the New Testament this privileged status we have to be forever linked with Christ and he with us. And Jesus here goes a step further. And he says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me through receiving my disciple also receives who? Him who sent me. As theologian Joachim Jeremias writes, God himself enters the house with Jesus' messengers. Isn't that incredible? This giving a cup of water, this was a very, very basic act of hospitality in the ancient world. It was expected. You don't get a reward for doing what is expected. But Jesus says, even this simple expected gesture toward one of my disciples will receive a reward that can't be lost. 
So while following Jesus comes at great cost, we step into this whole new reality that brings eternal blessing. So yes, count the cost, but also count the blessing, which of course we can't do. There's no comparison. Living for now and losing everything or living for Christ and finding the life we were created for, eternal life. A life that now might bring temporary struggle and conflict, but ultimately brings true shalom. Brings real peace, a flourishing both now and for eternity. And so as we follow Christ, let's allow these words of the Master to reset our expectations. Whether we're considering following Jesus, stepping into a life of discipleship, or whether we've been a Christian for 40 years. Let's let these words either set or reset our expectations. As we get distracted or sidetracked by the world's values and concerns, Jesus brings us back to this priority of following him. Losing our lives for him so we can find life. So this week, if you're facing suffering, if you're facing conflict or even persecution, maybe next time that happens, we won't be so surprised because Jesus promises it here. Maybe the next time or this week when you're tempted to fear, we can remember that Jesus told us even the hairs of our head are numbered. The next time we're tempted to hold God to our timetable of right now, Let's remember that we're in his kingdom. We're now operating on an eternal time frame. Complete justice is coming. All wrongs will be righted, but not yet. So that thing you're waiting on, that thing you want God to do in your life right now, keep praying about it. Have faith. God can do anything, but know that his will may be not to do that thing for you, even in this life. So can you put that concern, can you put that burden on him and trust him anyway? Can we take up our calling to carry our cross and follow Jesus? This might mean something different for each of us, but our calling is the same. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it costs. This is what it brings. And so agreeing to terms and conditions might be a lie for many things these days, but we cannot say the same thing about following Christ. We've just read some of the terms and conditions together. If you know the story of missionary Jim Elliott, he's one that took this calling to heart. And for him, this cost of discipleship to lose your life for Jesus was literal. He lost his life for Jesus, trying to bring the gospel to the Aka people of Ecuador. He was only 28 years old when he was martyred. The world would look at that and say, what a waste. But again, with Jesus' words in mind, the real waste is for someone to live a very, very long life for themselves. My favorite thing Jim Elliott ever said is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. His diary was found after his death. And these were the last words of Jim Elliot as he wrote in his diary as they awaited the Akas to come to them, of course, having no idea what the future would bring. These are his last words. I walked out to the hill just now, 
It is exalting to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart. To gaze in glory and give oneself again to God, what more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children, and by that he means converts, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments and smile into his eyes, ah, then, not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. He closes these words with a prayer. And so let's close our time together by praying the prayer that he wrote. Lord Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven, take your crown. Subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. Amen. Let us stand together.